This week is a message on Mark 6, which Larry had just read to us. Thank you very much, Larry. I love it when Larry reads. Let's, let's all bless Larry with a... Thank you, Larry. I do want to say that it is Bethsaida. I don't think they went to Bethesda, which I think is in Maryland. But, <laughs> but Bethsaida, I do that every time, so I'm glad you read it, not me. There's a... Okay, well, there we go. So this week is about rest, and and I, I thought it fitting. We're not in the middle of a series, so uh, if you're trying to take notes and put it in your outline and get it all categorized, uh, this one just goes somewhere. And uh, there's no real good place to put it. But I, I think it's, um, I was seeking the Lord about what to talk about for our body, and the only burden I had was a pastoral burden of learning, for each one of us to learn how to um, go to the source of our faith as not just a thing that we do out of religious obligation, but rather that what we talked about last week, the, the love of the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we would really learn in, in a few short weeks before we get into another season of, of uh, new evangelism coming on and new meetings coming on. Before that season comes about, I think it's important for us to study and ask the Lord to help us with this idea of obtaining our source of life from Jesus and and not thinking that it comes from us, not thinking that we have it in ourselves to serve the Lord. Um, there's a guy by the name of Mike Bickle, and Mike Bickle runs the International House of Prayer in Kansas City, where they pray quite a lot. And um, one of it, my favorite quote from Mike Bickle uh, he's got many good teachings, some that I, I don't like, some that I really like. Um, but it, my favorite quote from Mike Bickle is, there are two types of people in the body of Christ. There are lovers and there are workers, and lovers always get more done than workers. And what he means by that is that there are people who serve in the church in various capacities that actually function in their ministry or their their attempts to serve other either non-believers with the gospel or or serving the poor or serving the church or or discipling people there are some people who work more than they love as in their primary goal in the lord is not the lord but rather it is to to serve and and they've they've got their priorities out of order and so if that's a very real possibility that those types of people exist and they're in the church, it's possible that some of us function in that capacity or that we can begin to function in that way. This story is a story about the disciples having great success and it overwhelms them. I believe our our church is really on the cusp of a lot of new things. I think we're going to have some amazing stuff going on at Wright State this coming year, as well as what the Grays are doing with the kids' ministry, Kids Rock. And both of those things are going to produce fruit, and that fruit is going to need, uh, you know, harvesting, and that harvesting is often more work than if, you know, we just didn't do anything, it, or, or it just went badly. You know, if you go out and share the gospel and nobody bites, then, you know, at the end of the day, you can go home. Maybe you have to pray and repent or something like that. But, but at the end of the day, you didn't add any more work. And, and really in the kingdom, work begets work because it's a principle of multiplication. Jesus says, to, to whoever has, more will be given. And so uh, that's why people who are really good at their jobs always seem to be extremely busy because they, it just attracts 
you know, it, it attracts. Um, so with that all said, the purpose being that we should learn before we uh, go into this next season as a church, I want to look at these elements of the story. I want to look at Jesus' sending out and how that translates to their ability to learn the lesson that Jesus was teaching in the, in the feeding of the 5,000. We're going to look at John the Baptist's death. It kind of seems like this awkward, macabre uh, story in the middle of a larger story and why, why it's there. We're going to look at Jesus' call to the disciples to come away and rest, how it gets interrupted, sort of, by the feeding of the 5,000. And then we're going to look at Jesus on the water. And then finally, just up, we're going to look at some application how do we take these stories and and glean some meaning and how are they meaningful for our life? So Jesus is teaching in in all these vi- villages. He he had just went and you know taught in in neighborhoods at at this point, and now he's going to the villages, the remote areas in uh, Israel. He's not you know hanging out in Jerusalem or primarily in Judea. He's now just going everywhere throughout Israel and. He's going to find the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That is, people who are true children of God. Jesus is on his way uh, to, to contact them, to, to demonstrate that he's the Messiah. And in this process, Jesus diffuses the mission and sends his disciples out two by two. And so there's uh, at least six teams. Maybe if it's the disciples and the apostles, maybe there's more than six teams. But they, they go out into the land, and he gives them everything and nothing at all. And what I mean by that, he gives them everything in that he gives them authority. He gives them authority over evil spirits and the ability to heal and to uh, bring about a change, bring about a message of, message of repentance. And in the way that he gives them nothing, he gave them nothing at all that would help them in the natural. He told them to take not a bag, not a purse. Uh, we wouldn't take purses anyway, but uh, if you're a man, you wanted to take a purse. He's talking about a little purse of money. He, he didn't give them a bag to carry stuff in, uh, a purse of money. The only thing that they were allowed to take with them was the authority and the commission that he sent them on. That is the commission to go into the cities and to preach a message of repentance. And so they had no uh, extra tunic. So they needed to, f- at the end of every day, they had to find a place to sleep. I mean, this is a very intense mission that Jesus is sending the disciples on. If you think about it, it's like Jesus takes away the keys to your car, and then he takes away like your iPod or your iPhone, and you don't have GPS, and he takes away your wallet, and he basically sends you somewhere in the city or in the farms, uh, you know, in the out in the wilderness or wherever, and he says, go and preach the gospel, and here's a buddy who doesn't have any more than you have. Uh this is, this is the message that, that I want you to preach. I, I want you to preach a message of repentance, and here you're going to need this. Here's authority to cast out evil spirits and authority to uh, anoint the sick and see them recover. So they have everything, and they have absolutely nothing. And this is the beginning of Jesus' teaching the disciples. This entire passage, the reason I chose it, it is one lesson. And you see that at the end when it says that they were afraid because they didn't learn the message of the the fish and the loaves. And this lesson that Jesus is teaching them, he's teaching the disciples to rely solely on the provision that God himself makes, not on things they can do on their own, not on their good efforts and their striving and their saving over years and their preparation. He gives them a certain amount of authority 
they had been with him for only a few years, so they didn't, you know, it's not like he's sending them out with doctorates in, in theology. I mean, these are people who are basically told to preach a message of repentance. And this is where we catch up with John the Baptist. Um, they're preaching a message of repentance, and that is the same message that John the Baptist was preaching. He was going around in all of the places in Israel and preaching, repent, for the Lord is at hand. That is, make the way of the Lord straight. Every, you know, bring down the mountains and raise up the valleys. The way of the Lord will be a pure and, and righteous way. And he's preparing, like a farmer tills the ground in, a, in the farmland, he's preparing the nation of Israel to receive the seed of the incarnate word of God and the message of salvation that he's going to bring. And so John the Baptist is preaching this, and then we see this story, right? Jesus sends the disciples out amazing stuff starts happening. And then John the Apostle, the, the guy who wrote this gospel, um, or not John the Apostle, this is Mark. John, uh, Mark, the, the apostle writer, uh, said, uh, you know, here's this story about John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is a guy who's completely unwavering in his message of repentance. And he's kind of demonstrating um, what is taking place in the midst of this missionary activity. So we hear about this guy, Herod, and uh, if you want to study it out, there's two Herods. There's Philip, and that's Herod Philip, and then this guy is Antipas, Herod Antipas. And they were children, they were sons of another Herod who came before them, just in case you get confused if you uh, are, you know, reading in your study notes or something. But this Herod guy, this Herod is a king who is not a king of Israel, he was a king over Palestine, appointed by the Romans. And because he wasn't a king of Israel, uh, God is using him in this story to demonstrate the unrighteous kings that, that Israel has had versus the king that's going to come through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so this Herod guy, he does an extremely evil thing. He first divorces his first wife, and then while he's traveling back and forth to Rome, uh, he meets his brother Philip's wife, who is named Herodias. And he meets uh, that, that woman and basically falls in love with her and convinces her to also divorce her husband and, and come and, and live with him. And his actions are the complete opposite of God's law. What the, what the gospel writer here is doing is demonstrating the unfaithfulness of Israel through this story. In, Deut in Deuteronomy 25, uh, there's a commandment uh, called uh, the Liverite uh, vow or the Liverite provision. And this commandment is uh, very interesting to our modern ears. It, it might seem odd, but the commandment is this. If your brother has a wife and you remain unmarried and your brother dies, you are to marry your brother's wife and raise up an heir for, for that man. And this is, you know, this is kind of weird. Like if you think about it, right? It, it, if any of us have brothers, you know, think about your brother having a wife and then he dies and now you marry your brother's wife. I mean, that just seems weird to our modern American English culture or, you know, our amalgamated society, right? It's, it's a very odd idea. But actually, the, the, the law here is a very pure and biblical, true, godly thing. The provision explicitly was to set up a, a, a place of refuge for this woman who has just become a widow. 
And so, you know, when a, when a man would die, his wife, if he, you know, wasn't a good saver or didn't have a lot of wealth, his wife would either have to begin to work, and in that society it was very difficult for women to, to work in trade because most of the, the types of labor there were skilled uh, laborers, farming, agriculture, or some sort of artisan work, but mostly it would be building, farming, you know, masonry, extremely difficult work for a woman, for, for a woman to perform. And so it's likely the case that in that society, that woman would eventually become destitute and fall into extreme uh, difficulties. And so God's law makes a provision so that all of these uh, women who, in their society who have husbands who die can be taken care of. And so Herod literally overturns this law it's like the complete opposite what he does. Not only has his brother not died, uh, but his brother is married, and he himself is married, and yet he, unlike, uh, unlike the righteousness of God, which creates safety, provision for, for others in, in the culture, for other people that we are called to love, uh, Herod kills, basically kills two marriages and creates an ungodly marriage on his own apart from God's law, against God's law, completely in the opposite direction of God's intention to create a society that would be secure and, and God-honoring. And so Herod's got a wife, and his brother hasn't died yet, but he divorces his first wife. Herodias divorces her husband, Philip, and Herod takes Herodias to be his wife. And so this is what John the Baptist is basically saying to Herod. Herod, you're a breaker of the law. This marriage is illegal. You are, you know, you are subverting God's purposes. And so because of this, Herodias kind of hates John the Baptist, and through a series of very twisted events, uh, Herodias tells her daughter to have Herod, after her daughter dances, probably sexually explicitly, uh, before Herod and his other, um, you know, court, uh, that Herodias wants John the Baptist's head. So John the Baptist basically gives in. He made a, a, a bad oath and Herod kills John the Baptist. Now, if it is the case that uh, Mark, not John the Apostle, Mark wrote the letter, uh, wrote the gospel in this way, that this story took place because of what was going on both in the missionary activity of the disciples, and also it's possible, I think this is the case, but it's not explicit, that this was about the time that the disciples got news about John the Baptist's death. Now, that's my conjecture. It's not explicit in the text, but it seems to be uh, fitting. That's why it's in the middle of this other story. And so can you imagine what is going on in the disciples' hearts and minds? Some of them had actually been John the Baptist's disciples before they started following Jesus. And so these apostles, these, t these teams who've gone out into the cities, they're seeing demons uh, leave, they're seeing bodies restored, healings are happening, and they're preaching a message of repentance, and all of a sudden, they get this news that John the Baptist had been killed. Now, to me, that would be an extremely tumultuous time. That would be a time where my heart would be both torn, that a spiritual father had died, and at the same time, greatly rejoicing because I'm a friend of the bridegroom, and it's my joy to see the bridegroom uh, exalted and, and, and demonstrated. And so in this position, the apostles have uh, some stuff going on. 
You know, later we're going to see them on a boat with wind in the waves, but the wind and the waves were already at work in their heart. They were seeing extreme breakthrough and also extreme uh, sadness about this story that they had heard about. And so they're traveling from town to town, relying on the provision of God. They're having great success, and that is always more taxing than when things go badly or you just have some sort of mediocre success. And this is how Jesus demonstrates to us that following Jesus is not all about certainty. You don't know what Jesus is going to do next, right? And in our natural mind, we would think when the ministry is really hopping and, and things are really going, when the gears are turning and the engines, you know, lubricated and RPMs are revving and when everything's going right, Jesus shuts it down. He says, come away. Come away and find some rest. And the Bible teaches us that this is Jesus' pattern. It's his lifestyle. In Luke 5.16, the ESV doesn't have the word often here, but other translations place this word uh, often in the middle of the sentence, but he would often withdraw to desolate uh, places and pray. Now, you, you hear this word desolate, and you think to yourself, why would Jesus go to a desolate place? If he's tired and weary and needs nourishment, why would he go somewhere desolate? Why wouldn't he go to like the Luxor or the, you know, a Marriott? Like he would want to go to a place that's like comfortable with a buffet and, you know, room service or a pool. No, he goes to a desolate place. He goes somewhere where no one else is around. And what does he do there? He prays. He reconnects with the Father. And this is amazing. So Jesus is calling the disciples. He's saying, come away with me, right? It's like in Song of Solomon, right? Come away. And, and Jesus then goes in and takes them across the boat. And he gets, they get into a boat. And whenever you see uh, the sea or, or a boat or the disciples crossing over, it's Jesus trying to kind of, in a, in a, through land, through the story, he's trying to say, we're crossing over to another way of thinking. We're, we're leaving what you know, and I'm taking you into the unknown where you're going to trust me and you're going to find out who God really is as your provider and your caregiver. So even though this happens, Jesus's intention is to bring them away. When they land on the other side, uh, there's already a crowd. A crowd had followed them. I mean, this is how amazingly successful the apostles were in their, in their teaching, preaching, healing, and deliverance. They had literally created such a following that people found out and kind of looked as their boat was leaving the shore, okay, based on my knowledge of this shoreline, I think they're going to this other city. And they get a whole crowd of at least 5,000 people and go kind of try to find out where they're going to land. And they made it. And so Jesus sees these people and he has compassion. He sees them and has compassion for this reason. They're like sheep without a shepherd. Now, what Jesus is doing there in in his compassion, he's, he's demonstrating the people of Israel do not have shepherds. They have Pharisees. They have Sadducees. They have religious leaders. But they do not have people who are taking care of their hearts. When he encounters Peter, after Peter denies and is restored, what's the prime goal of Jesus? The prime goal of Jesus in in restoring Peter is that Peter would love Jesus and that Peter would know Jesus loves him. And then through that love, Peter is going to feed my sheep 
or feed the Lord's sheep. And so Jesus sees these people and he has compassion and he starts teaching and the disciples are eventually, you know, tired again and he tells them to go away. And then Jesus does some amazing stuff. He, you know, he's always turning the tables. It's not just in the temple. And he says to them, after they say, uh, you know, send the people away so they can go buy food, he says to them, you give them something to eat. Now, you got to remember the story as it goes, in context. Why did Jesus tell them to come away? It said, the very next verse, it said, because they had nothing, they didn't even have time to eat, right? They didn't have food with them. They didn't have time to go to the store and prepare it and, you know, go to market or whatever. And then in the midst of them having nothing, when they're already tired, when they're already at a point of emotional exhaustion, possibly if they had just heard about John the Baptist dying, they're at a point of emotional turmoil that would leave you and I uh, probably weeping for days. I mean, can you imagine, it, you know, take any spiritual father that you've got, whether it's a pastor here or someone you know about on the national scene. I mean, imagine if you heard like tomorrow, Bill Johnson like died or, or, or my dad like died out of nowhere. I mean, that would, that would really mess you up. And Jesus is in the middle of doing this with the disciples. He's walking them through this And he says to them, when they have no food, when they're tired, in a state of emotional anguish, feed these people. He gives them a command. He says, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to to them to eat? Now, they're kind of being sarcastic because that amount of money they probably didn't have on them. And they're they're saying, you know, possibly they're confused. Possibly they are being a little sarcastic. And they're saying to Jesus, you don't get it, Jesus. We just were ministering, and you were the one who told us to come and get food with you. You know we don't have any food. And yet Jesus doesn't revoke the command. And so you got to really imagine and put yourself in this story. The apostles are tired, they're hungry, they don't have any food, and they hear their discipler, the person who is caring for them, he hears them uh, say or they hear him say, feed these people, feed this crowd. If you guys were at the, the VBS and the, uh, the community outreach, we probably had like 500 people there throughout the entire day, coming in, going out. And that might even be a high estimate. Can you imagine how large a group of 5,000 people looks like? That would fill the entire football field down there. And that would be just people standing and probably spilling out into the streets. This is a huge amount of people, and they didn't have 20, 30, 40 people. They had 12 people. And Jesus is saying to them, feed them. What what Jesus is doing is he is trying to convince them, I am the one who provides for you. Your source of your resources, your life, your, your energy, what you feed your heart on is not what you have in the natural. It's not at all. And I can imagine their response, but Jesus, we came with you to get food, and now you're telling us to feed others. This is impossible. Jesus gives them a command, and he never changes his mind at all. He then asks them, you know, do you have anything? They've got bread and fish. And so Jesus blesses the food. He lifts it up to heaven, and then he hands it to the disciples. And then the disciples hand it to the people. Now, you got to know, he never revoked that command, you feed them. And Jesus is literally performing a miracle, but it's 
it's not very clear from the text whether Jesus fed the 5,000 or whether it multiplied in the hands of the disciples. Needless to say, Jesus is attempting to demonstrate. He's trying to teach the disciples. So he sends them off again after all the people leave. And then Jesus uh, accomplishes his goal. In Mark 6, 46, And after he had taken leave of the crowd, he went up to the mountain to pray. This is Jesus' goal. He's saying, well, we were going to rest, but I know you guys need some time to process this whole 5,000 thing. So he sends them off. And they're on the boat, and they're probably talking amongst themselves, you know, who passed out the most food or, or you know, who was really the guy who found the boy who had the food. You know, they're taking glory, possibly. Um, and the disciples are on this boat. Now, Jesus is still on the land. And the point of this story is really Jesus lived as a man totally dependent on the Father, for he not for he only does what he sees the Father doing. Jesus wasn't just teaching his disciples out of, you know, his own goal or or something like that. He saw the Father demonstrating and, and teaching this small group of guys that this is how you live. You live in total dependency to God. And so in this respect, the way that Jesus lived, that is the model for how we are to live. It's not the case that Jesus did all of his miracles out of his divinity, though he never rejected his divinity. Philippians 2 says that he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. Now, we agree and teach that Jesus was fully God and fully man at all times, yet in his walk with the Lord, in his ministry, he lived as a man completely dependent on the Holy Spirit for his anointing. And he is the demonstration of how we are to live as his disciples right, uh, filled with the Spirit and rightly related to the Father. And so he maintains this devotion. He maintains his connection to the Father through prayer, through fasting, and through communion via the Holy Spirit. And this is how Jesus lives, and this is how Jesus knows what the Father is doing. He says, I only do what I see the Father doing. Well, Jesus isn't seeing into heaven with his natural eyes, and they're seeing the Father doing things. He's seeing by the Spirit. This is a spiritual type of vision. And, you know, if the disciples thought the feeding of the 5,000 was amazing, he's about to blow their minds. Mark 6, 47 through 48, And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he, Jesus, was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, uh, if you've ever heard of a sea versus a lake, a sea is much larger than a lake, and it contains places where as you're going around a few miles, uh, the curvature of the earth is such that after you've been on the water traveling for a while, you literally cannot see around the world to uh, see what's happening over here, if you can imagine that. That's why we can't see all the other space uh, on the, all the other land on the earth, right? So th they're going over this sea, and Jesus is up on a mountain, far away from the sea, and the scripture says that he sees them progressing painfully. Now, I'm pretty convinced that this is a total spiritual vision that is aided by the Holy Spirit. Jesus saw spiritually what was taking place. Now, you, you'll read a lot of Bible commentaries that say, like, he was on a cliff and they were, hadn't made it very far, but whatever, I mean, he's about to walk over the sea, <laughs> 
you know, it's not too hard for him to, to know spiritually. And so he comes to these disciples and he, he takes a stroll on the water in the midst of winds and waves. This is absolutely amazing. It goes on to say, he meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, why is it the case that he intended to to pass right by them? We're going to examine that in a second. He intends to pass right by them. The disciples uh, as you and I would probably also react, are terrified that there's some, you know, man-like figure walking on water in the midst of a storm. You know, if you've seen The Princess Bride, I'd be thinking the Dread Pirate Roberts is coming for me. And, you know, like, this is, this is terrifying. There's a guy walking on water, and he's coming towards my boat. Where is my shotgun? You know, that's, where, that's what I'd think. The disciples, they don't have any way to understand what Jesus is teaching them through the the miracles, and so they're afraid. And it says, and he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For what reason? For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Now, they were scared in the moment of the sea, but the gospel writer says, the reason they were scared, the reason they were terrified when Jesus shows up in the middle of a storm is because they hadn't learned the previous lesson that God was teaching them through the miracle of the loaves. And not only did they not learn, they had become calloused to the word of God, the word that God was teaching them in that episode, in that story. And so this is really the point of these stories is who is the source of our life? What are we feeding ourselves on? In the midst of seeking rest in the Lord, that's when he always opens up new opportunities. It's not that as Christians we never rest, but what it is is God is confirming again that we know through our actions, through taking time to encounter God, obeying his voice when he calls us, come away. By obeying him, we're demonstrating yet again that we remember where our, our life comes from, what we rely on. We're not relying on what we have, our own strength, our own soul. We're relying on the strength that God provides. And when God sees that faithful activity, that's when he opens new doors again. And if you're going to live in such a way of ever-increasing victory uh, over sin, ministry in life, ability to help those who are hurting around you, you're going to have to learn the lesson to intentionally take time before you burn out, to go to the Lord and to hear his voice say, come away with me. I'm wanting you to come and spend time with me. Come up to the mountain. I have things for you to hear. I have things to show you. And so the question really becomes in the moment after the ministry is done, after we go home, who are we turning to? Are we turning to false comforts of entertainment or or alcohol or or food, or drugs, or whatever? Are we feeding our hearts on things that are not food at all? Or are we feeding them on the things of the Lord? The miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 isn't primarily about food, although that's, you know, the object lesson that Jesus uses. The lesson is about where is your source of life? What do you rely on? And Jesus is teaching his disciples that the word of God, the commands that God gives to you, 
however they come, whether it's through a, a church leader, a pastor, you, you taking it to the Holy Spirit, or you hearing from the Lord yourself and, and submitting that to godly people, the commands, the commissions of God that come to you, that you hear, contain the very power and anointing to accomplish the mission. That's what Jesus is teaching his disciples. He said, you feed them, and he never revokes that command. So uh, this, is, this is the case. When Jesus was walking on the water, he commanded the disciples to cross over to the other side. Why does it say that he intended to pass by? Think about it. They're a tiny little boat with 12 guys who he's invested in heavily, and they're literally the only possible future for after he makes atonement for the foundation of the church, therefore the salvation of the world throughout the years. And Jesus says, I'm just going to walk by. I'm just taking a stroll on the sea. And, I'm, you know, I can walk faster than their boats making progress. I mean, that's, an ins- that's intense. Jesus is saying by his actions, I'm just going to walk by. I'm going to wave at them. And why does he intend to walk by? Well, he didn't see the need to intervene. Jesus didn't think it was a problem that their boat was in the midst of this wind and waves, and he was totally confident in the word that he had commanded them. He told them to go over to the other side, and it will happen. Wind waves may come. Their boat's not going to capsize. They're not at all going to be destroyed or prevented from getting there. And that's why he intended to pass by. It had nothing to do with he was callous or didn't want to hang out with them. He just didn't see the need to get involved. And we, I mean, we would like call the Coast Guard and, you know, like marshal an army, like send people with rafts, send people with boats. We'd call it, we'd call a conference or something or a retreat. Jesus just doesn't see the need to get involved. He doesn't see the need to, um, to intervene. He doesn't at all have any fear that what he had commanded them wasn't going to come to pass. Just like he had commanded them to go preach, and they preached, and they were successful. Just like he told them to feed the crowd, and they didn't have faith, but he did. And remember earlier how I talked about a principle of multiplication. To, hit, to whoever has, more will be given. And to him who doesn't have, even what he does have will be taken away. This is what happens when the disciples don't respond in faith to the thing that God was doing before their eyes. Jesus performs a miracle through them and feeds the 5,000, yet they don't have faith. And whenever God comes, that principle of multiplication takes place. It's like when, when God approaches his people, God comes and he doesn't change. And wherever his people are at, there's either a blessing that comes from God or there's judgment that comes from God. He winnows, he prunes, etc. And so the, the faith that the disciples had was too little to uh, make any difference in this situation. And that even, that, even that warmness of heart that they did possibly have toward Jesus and what he was doing, that was taken away because they were offended at what God did, even though it was a miracle. And that is really the, the most amazing part of this whole story is Somehow the apostles, they had gotten off track. They had thought, well, we, Jesus, we were just ministering, and now you called us to come away, and now we obeyed you, and, and we were really successful, and at, at our telling you the success, you didn't, like, praise us. You just said, come away and spend time with me. See, the apostles had fallen into the error of valuing the mission over the commissioner, 
That is, they had begun to value their missionary success, their evangelistic success, over and against the person who sent them. And that's why they were hardened, hardened in their heart. And Jesus, again, invites us to rest today. The invitation that he brings, the rest that he calls us into, is an invitation not only to commune with him, but in that communion to renew our mind about the way that we think our life works, the way that we think we uh, have success in life. It's not by our own strength. It's not by your skill or your talents or even doing a good job in stewarding what God's given you. You only know to do that because he told you to do that in his, in his law. And so it's not even our faithful obedience to his law because that would just be us doing what he told us. It's also the case that God himself aids us and directs us. He's our shepherd. He's our guide. He's the way. And we must follow him. And so that invitation to rest is also an invitation to renew our mind to see how God sees. And so as we are called again today, Christ says to us through communion, come and rest and take on my burden and eat with me and dine with me. And as we do that today, as we come to the table, we should come expectantly with faithful hearts that the word that God is speaking to us in this season will not fail and it will come to pass. That's, that's what we do when we come to com communion. We come with faithful, expectant hearts, seeking rest in the Lord and taking his burden and laying aside our, our other burdens of selfish ambition and, and serving God more than loving God and, and fighting for our own significance and trying to be somebody instead of being with the Lord. So that's what we're going to do as we take communion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wonderful way of working with us. We ask you, Jesus, we just open ourselves up, Jesus, to you again, turning the tables on us. We want to know you, Jesus. We want to follow you. We want to see. We want to know. And Lord, we, we're ready for you to, to change our expectations. You aren't a God that can be boxed in, and, and we don't have any sort of way to control you, God. Jesus, you do amazing things. You feed 5,000 people with five pieces of bread. And you walk on seas that are full of wind and waves and storms and thunder. And you are confident, Jesus, more than, more than your miracles, you're faithful. And you're, you're filled with faith about what God is doing today. And, and you have confidence and you're, you're praying for us even now. So, Father, we ask that you would open up our lives again to, to the flipping of tables that so often happens when Jesus comes near. We ask that we would not revert to our natural mind in, in seeking resolution for problems. Lord, we ask that you would demonstrate to us the, the type of resolutions that you want to come about. Lord, we ask that we would be faith-filled and that we would not be those who would see something that you do and yet have our hearts hardened. Lord, we're not above that. We just don't, we hope it won't happen to us. We ask you to give us the ability to come to you before the burnout, before the anxiety and the stress and the frustration. We ask you, Lord, that we would be lovers more than workers. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.